Join me as we uh, go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, God, what a, what a time it is in the pages of your redemptive history, Father. Time when we rejoice, Father, when we, we see the coming of the cross and we see the resurrection, Father. Or no doubt this is a time of Spiritual warfare is history, as your word retells the story of how Christ came and he conquered death on our behalf, God. So I pray that you would prepare us, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, remove far from us, Lord, anything that would take away from your message this morning. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, that as we go through this text, as we go through this passage, Lord, that is so weighty, it is so heavy. Lord, let us feel that. Let us be burdened by it. And let us be brought to, to faith. Lord, let us see that supernatural miracle of regeneration. And faith worked in this place today, Lord. God, I pray that you would just be lifted up in this message. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22 today, verses 54 through 71, Luke 22, 54 through 71, and we're going to be looking at the humiliation of Christ, the humiliation of Jesus Christ. And by way of intro, first, I want to speak to you about exaltation. You might think that's kind of strange since we're talking about Christ being humiliated, that we would be talking about exaltation, but I promise it will make sense. Just give me, give me a minute. I'll get to that. Um, but, but to be exalted or to exalt something is to... To raise to a higher level in rank of honor or power or character, to elevate something or someone above ourselves. That's a, that's a definition that you would get today from, from one of our dictionaries or through Google or something like that. And by that interpretation, we see that there are, are currently many things in our lives that, that we have chosen to exalt in one way or another, whether that be fame, a celebrity, an athlete, someone who has massive amounts of, of knowledge or massive amounts of, of wealth, we, we, we sort of take who has the most or who does the most or who says the most and we exalt that thing or we exalt that person. And, and if that happens to, to be us, then we have no problem exalting ourselves. If we're the one that is, that is better or stronger in some way, shape, or form. But the Bible, but Scripture uses the word to exalt or to be exalted in a, in a completely different way. The Bible has roughly 140 verses that, that speak on exaltation or to be exalted or that, that concept of lifting up. And, and throughout those 140 verses, if you, if you go through them, if you study them, you're, you're going to see a couple things jump out at you. One, that, that true exaltation comes from God and from God alone. Man cannot exalt himself. It is God who exalts. And two, that God exalts the humble. It is the humble that he lifts up, and it is the proud that he opposes. And the passage that we'll be looking at this morning, that, that becomes very evident in Christ's account, in his, his path to, to exaltation, which was by way of his humiliation. So as we discuss this, as we, as we look at his humiliation, as we look at what he has gone through on our behalf, my, my prayer is that we would feel the weight of that humiliation, that we would see what he has done on our behalf and, and be broken by that. 
So when you leave here today, you're not just leaving with an understanding, with, with the knowledge of, well, yeah, Christ did those things for me, I, I get that, but that you would have a wholehearted belief that Christ is worthy to be exalted. That as Scripture speaks of exaltation, that it's He alone that is worthy to be lifted up, and it is because of the exaltation, or it is because of the humiliation that He has went through on our behalf that He is worthy of that exaltation. If you have found your place there in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 71, I would ask you to stand if you can as we read the Scripture. I promised Brother Richard that I would keep you all in shape this week while he was, while he was out of the pulpit. Make sure you keep your legs under you for when, for when he's back. So starting in verse 54 of, of chapter 22, the, the word of the Lord reads, Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the light looking closely at him said this man also was with him but he denied it saying woman i do not know him and a little later someone else saw him and said you also are one of them peter said man i am not and after an uh, an interval of about an hour still another insisted saying certainly this man was with him for he too is a galilean but peter said man i do not know what you are talking about And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now then, men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Thank you. You may be seated. May the Lord bless and honor the reading of his holy word. So to provide you with a little context before we begin to unpack this passage, we are in Passion Week. The the plot between Judas and and the chief priests has come to fruition. Christ has been arrested uh, in the garden. Uh, To back up some on that, there has been the institution of the Lord's Lord's Supper, uh, by which that's when Judas got up and he leaves, and and Christ sort of dismisses him to go and do what he knew it was that, that he would do. As he left, there was sort of an argument that, that ensued of, of who was the greatest. The disciples are, are wondering, who's the best, who's the greatest? And Jesus solemnly lets them know that the, the greatest is the least, and he would soon embody that. Soon after that, we see a warning that he gives to, to Peter that Satan has demanded him, that he was going to sift him like sand, but he has prayed for him so that his faith, his faith might not fail, but when he returned, he could strengthen the brothers he leads them out further into, into prayer, into the garden where he's separated himself, Jesus has, and he's praying even harder. And we read in different accounts how his sweat has become like drops of blood as he prays there. The disciples who is with him, Peter being one of those disciples, they're, they're sleeping. 
goes to wake them up to pray. They go back to sleep. He wakes them up again. And it is at that time that the, the officers of the court arrive and, and Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. And at that point, he is, he is arrested. And this is where our story begins to, to take place. And in this passage, we're going to look at three ways that Christ's exaltation came through his humiliation on our behalf. Three ways that Christ's exaltation came through his humiliation that was on our part. The first of these points is that Christ alone is worthy of exaltation because he was completely abandoned on our behalf. He was completely abandoned. If we look at that first account that, that is known as Peter's fall or, or the denial of Peter, we see that it doesn't really start there. If we back up to verses 31 and we look a little bit at Jesus' warning where he speaks to him and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might shift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter says to him, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, Peter, I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. So Peter gets this warning from Jesus of, of what is to come, and it sort of falls on deaf ears. He says, Peter, I need you to know that Satan is coming for you. He's demanded you, but I've prayed for you. And, and, and Peter, not so many words, says, it's, it's okay, I've, I've got this. I'm ready to go with you. I'm, I'm ready to, to die for you. I will go to prison with you. Don't worry about me, Jesus. I can, I can do this. Again, when they're, when they're praying, it's Peter that falls asleep, and Jesus wakes him up and says, pray so that you might not enter into temptation, and, and, and he sleeps again. So then in our passage, we see that as he sees and he's, he's led away, Peter is, Peter is following him, but he's following him at a distance. And as a certain amount of time went by, as he got by some, some different people, that's when we see his, his denial. You might think, well, what, what does this have to do with me? And this stings a little bit when we look at it, but what Peter is doing is he is following Christ just close enough that his conscience isn't bothering him. He's staying just close enough that he can tell himself, well, I'm still following Jesus. I'm still, still doing what I'm supposed to do. Yet you'll notice he's not so close that his reputation is being damaged, that he's not being found out as a follower of Jesus. And what I have to say is that we have that tendency. We do the same thing. When we're in church, we have no problem praising Jesus' name, lifting our hands, singing praises to him. But what do we do when church is over? When we go out of these doors and that separation is there, and we've got some distance between us and him, what, what do we do? We deny him. It might not be with our words, and it might not be all the time, but with our actions, when the world comes closing in on us, it is our tendency to say, well, yeah, I, I go to church, but I mean, I'm not like one of, one of those people. You know, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I love Jesus, but I'm not like fanatical or anything. I don't take it seriously. That's what Peter does here. That's what, that's, what, that's what we do. We see that Peter is following him just close enough to help his conscience, but not so close to damage his reputation. And it's because of his, his pride and his, his rebellion that, that he has been dealing with that he thinks he can get by with that. But yet we, we see what happens to Peter will happen to us that Soon enough, we're going to abandon him fully. Enough time, enough separation. I don't know him. I don't know him. 
Man, I do not know him. But thankfully, we read that as that rooster crowed, that the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. He looked at Peter and it says Peter remembered the words of Christ. And we get to see how the grace of God works that even though like Peter that we will abandon him, Christ will not abandon us. Even when we fall, even when we stumble and we have choose to deny him or separate from him, Christ still, still looks at us and we see the grace of God calling to us, coming out to us. And it says Peter was reminded of the words of Christ, which we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We also see the, the response that, that, that Peter has, the proper response to when he realizes what he has done. He realizes that he has abandoned the Son of Man, the Son of God, that he has denied him as he, he looks, he gets the look from Christ and he looks back and I'm just thinking that, that, that Jesus preached a sermon to him in those moments that he will never forget and he responds and he weeps and he's broken. And we, do, we do find later on that, that he does what Christ says and he returns to strengthen his brothers as Christ had earlier instructed him to do in, in verse 32 when he warned him before. But we have to see that. We have to see ourselves there. We have to know that that is our tendency, that that is our abandonment that we are placing on Christ. And then we have to see that Christ is suffering this abandonment on our behalf and that we are the ones that deserve it because we are the ones that ultimately abandon him. But he is the one that has stepped in and he has taken our abandonment. So we see that he is worthy to be exalted because although it's us who deserve to be abandoned, it is him who takes the abandonment. And he, and he takes the abandonment that, that we deserve and then he offers us the forgiveness that we don't deserve. So we see that Christ alone is worthy to be exalted because he suffered the abandonment on our behalf that, that we deserved. As we move on through the passage, we come to the second point. That Christ alone is worthy of exaltation because he was utterly disgraced on our behalf. Christ alone is worthy of exaltation because he was utterly disgraced on our behalf. I'll try to repeat that. I'm not sure if everyone can see both of those screens. But we see this in, in verses 63 through, through 65. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and, and kept asking him to prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. They mocked him, they, they beat him, and they blasphemed him. But why, why did they have to do this? Was it not just enough to, to have him in custody? Was it not enough to, to take the sinless being, the perfect son of God, and just to, to have him confined, that they could have their way with him, that they could have their trial, that they could work their hour of darkness? But it wasn't. And it wasn't enough because they hated him. Because in Christ, they seen everything in themselves that they didn't want to see, that he was the reflection of the sin that they have. The, the reflection of the rebellion that's in them, the desire to, to, to just do everything they can to push Christ out of their life. The same tendencies that we see in man even today, in the world today, oh, they do not want Jesus to be the Son of God. He can be a prophet, he can be a teacher, he can maybe even be a king, but he cannot be the Son of God because that means we're guilty. If Jesus is who he says he is, then we're guilty as he says he is. So these men are doing everything in their power to have him proved guilty. 
They wanted to, to mock him. They, they want to add insult to his injury, so they, they blindfold him, and they're striking him, and they're asking him to prophesy, who is it? Who is it that hit you? Because they're, they're thinking, their thought is that, well, if he can't see me now, if he can't see me when I'm doing this right in front of him, and then there's no way he can see what I'm doing when I'm away from him. If he can't see me right here through this blindfold, then there's no way he knows what I've been doing in the darkness, the sin that I've been living in. So they want so bad for that to be true, for him to just be blinded by that blindfold. So they mock him and they make fun of him and they try to make that true in their own hearts. And so they, they go even farther and they beat him. He was severely beaten. When they rolled him out in, in front of that council, they wanted to present something that in no way could possibly resemble a Messiah. They wanted just a broken shell of a man that everyone could just look at and say, no way. No way he's the Son of God. No way he's the Messiah. Look at him. He can't even protect himself. He can't even defend himself. How could he possibly be the Messiah? That's part of his, his humiliation, enduring these things on our behalf. You see, he was still, even further, he was blasphemed. And imagine the sorts of wicked and hateful things that were coming out of their mouths that they were speaking against the Son of God by those officers. And isn't it ironic that they're charging him from blasphemy and they are themselves blaspheming God as they go through these motions. So, so how does this relate to us? How was this on, on, on our behalf that Christ has taken these beatings? I would never do that. There's, there's no way I could, I could possibly do that to, to God. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm, I might not uh, go to church every Sunday, and maybe I don't tithe the way I should, but I, I certainly wouldn't beat him. And I have to say you might be wrong about that. Because the same nature that is in these men is the nature that we all have. Given the right circumstances and the right conditions, that would have been you. That would have been me. It says in Genesis 5 that the Lord looked down and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So I ask you, who deserves to be disgraced? Who really deserves to be shamed? Who deserves to be locked away? Who deserves to be beaten, separated? And it's us. If anyone deserves to be disgraced, it's us. These, these creatures of the dirt who have who've tried over and over throughout time to raise up against a holy God. We deserve the locking away. We deserve the shame. We deserve to be beaten for our, our wicked deeds, our hateful speech, and for the way that, that we have continually with our lives and with our words, we have blasphemed God. But here again, what do we see? We see Christ. We see him taking our place again. Brings me to Hebrews 12. I think of this passage when I read this. I want to share this with you. If I can get to it. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We see that Jesus endured humiliation by sinners, and he endured it for sinners, for us. On our behalf, he took the disgrace that, that we certainly deserved. As we are the ones that continually blaspheme with our, with our actions and with our, and with our lives, how do our lives, how do our words line up from what we see here in church? But what we do here, where are we outside of those walls? It's easy to judge ourselves against the Scripture by the way we behave when we're sitting under Scripture. We think, well, no, I, that's, not, that's not me. But if we really get down to it, if we really look at ourselves, we really question ourselves, where, where is where is the honor? Where is the reverence? Where is the, the exaltation that Christ deserves throughout our everyday life? Or do we not, with our words and our actions, find ourselves with the same tendencies as these men here? Blaspheming, mocking. Whenever you choose to, to live in, in a sin, whatever that may be, from, from, from drug abuse to, to, to adultery to idolatry to pornography, any of those things, do you not think that that's blasphemy when we come in here to worship, that we can still plan our sin even while we're in here and we leave out of here and we, and we go and do these things that even under the word of God we plan to do? It's taking his name in vain. That is blasphemy and that is the nature that we have. But Christ takes all this when he comes on this, on this humble path of obedience that he, that he goes through. And so we see his mocking and his beating and his blasphemy that, that he takes on our behalf. I want to keep moving, moving through, the, through the scripture here and I want to look at Luke chapter 22. Obviously we'll look at 66 through, through 71. The last half of this passage I want to spend a little time on the, on the trial that we have here. Some background. In the, in the Talmud, which is the, the governing body for, for civil and Jewish law, there, there's a set of, of rules that we find have been completely abandoned at this point. It says that after Jesus was mocked, when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God. So we've gone from an arrest in the garden in the middle, in the middle of the night. And we would look at the other accounts of the gospel and we'd find that there has already been one, one examination. And now he's on his second examination and he's facing, facing prosecution. The Talmud would say that you cannot have a trial you cannot have the institution of an examination. You cannot pronounce a sentence. And you cannot carry it into execution on one in the same day. So there's four separate injunctions there that have been disregarded in the case of Jesus Christ. It's a wrongful arrest, it's a wrongful trial, and it's leading on its way to a wrongful condemnation. And this is being carried out by the ones who think that they are perfectly carrying out the law of God, yet they can't even keep their own laws. 
their own, their own governing body that they have instituted on how they will carry out civil and judicious manners, they are disregarding, yet they are trying to find a fault in someone who has kept the law perfectly, that he has broken the law. So there's certainly some, some irony in this, and we find that they, they bring him in at daybreak. They haven't given him a chance to compose himself. They've not given him a chance to, to build any kind of a, a defense or to clean himself up or even to properly represent himself in front of this council that definitely stands there to, to execute him. But unfortunately, it really doesn't matter because they had no intentions of listening to anything that, that he had to say. They were only there to convict him. They were not there for a fair trial. They were not gathered to hear his point. They were not gathered to find out if maybe he is who he says he is. They were just simply there to convict him. That's what they were gathered for. If we look at verses 67 through 68, it says, If you are the Christ, tell us. And this is his response. This is interesting. He said, If I tell you, you will not believe, which makes sense. But then he says, If I ask you, you will not believe answer so what he's what he's saying there is if, if i tell you who i am which i have done if we look at john his account it says that he pro spoke freely he, he never uh, spoke in secret with anybody they knew they knew who he was he says if i tell you you're not going to believe but if i ask you saying if i ask you who who do the who do the prophets say the messiah is who does the law point to if i ask you if those scriptures are fulfilled in me if those prophecies are found in me you're not going to give me an honest answer i can go to scripture and i can show you that it's me but you don't want to see that we can look at the prophets and you can see that it's me that they're talking about but you don't want to see that so he says if i ask you you will not answer but he does still still give reference to the scriptures as, as if he's offering one last plea maybe for them to, to turn and to see who he is. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Which that is a reference to, to Daniel when he sees the prophecy of Daniel 9, or Daniel 7, I'm sorry, starting at chapter 9. When he speaks of the Ancient of Days, this is what he says. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And he says, and I looked and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. But then he says, I saw in the night visions and behold with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus tells them, the scriptures speak of me. This is me. You know these prophecies. You know this is me. You know this is who I am, but you don't want this to be me. So then he gets his, his response when they, when they go further and they go ahead and, and put the question to him 
after he says that the Son of Man would be seated at the right hand of the power of God, which, by way, is the last time he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And they say, well, are you the Son of God then? After he so plainly showed them that he was, and he said to them, you say that I am. Now, at first glance, this looks like a, a reply or a confession that seems to be a little bit bashful, maybe, a little bit not wanting to admit but if you look at the original language, you find that this is a very, very bold confession. What he is essentially saying is that you speak the truth. I am who you say that I am. So he leaves no room for excuse. He leaves no room for unbelief. But then they still say, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So even after he gives his his explanation of who he is, and they know who he is, yet we see that their eyes are, are veiled. They're blinded by judicial prejudice, and they're blinded by jealousy, and they, they moved further into this hour of darkness that, they, that they're in. And so this illegal trial of Christ begins to come to a close with this, with this wrongful condemnation, with this remark that we get, well, what further testimony do we need? We, we've heard it from his own, his own mouth. And so Christ's words proved, proved to be true, or they proved his words true, rather, that they wouldn't believe him no matter what the Scripture said or what he said. When we look at John 3.16 and, and that passage there, if we look just past that at verse 17 and 18, we, we find condemnation, and we find who deserves that condemnation. And it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So the very men who are seeking to condemn Christ are standing themselves in condemnation. The difference is their condemnation, our condemnation, is rightfully deserved because we have refused to believe on the Son of God, yet they're trying to put the condemnation back on Him because, again, it goes back to who He is and what happens if He is who He says He is. If He is the Son of God, then I am indeed condemned. If He is the Son of God, then I deserve the punishment that it says that I'm under. But if we can condemn him, if we can get him just put to death, if we can get him wiped off the face of the earth, if we can just remove him from being in front of people, then we can take care of this and we can have, have our innocence. And yet again, here stands Jesus. He could call legions of angels if he wanted. He could certainly free himself if he wanted. And he steps into our place. And now he's taking the condemnation that we're under, that we deserve, And he's suffering that for us on our behalf. The people that, that, that beat him, that mock him, that, that go through all these things, that's whose place that he's taken. And that's us. You have to see that. That he's doing this for you. He's doing this on, on your behalf. This isn't what he just wanted to do. He's doing this to save, to redeem, to forgive. And it's all for you. He's worthy to be exalted. Because he has been 
wrongfully and he has been willingly condemned on our behalf. So that these condemned men that, that we are, this condemned race of man, can through him stand before God and be uncondemned. That through his forgiveness, we can actually have a relationship with God. We can come out from under this condemnation that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So this is all done on our behalf. So there's no other conclusion I don't think that we can reasonably come to but, but this, that because of his humiliation, because what Christ has suffered on our behalf, the way he was humiliated for us, that he alone is worthy to be exalted above everything else and everyone else in our lives. But I ask you, is that, is that true? What are you thinking of even now? Are you thinking of Christ's exaltation? Are you thinking of his worth and what he's gone through you for you? Or what are you thinking? What are you going to do when you get out of here? Can you not wait to get home to watch your favorite show? Can you not wait to get wherever you're going and check this off your list? Or is he really in your heart of hearts worthy to be exalted? Have you felt what he has done for you? I know I'm just a man and these are just words and I can't make you believe this, but the truth is there. And just like Peter, we get this, this look from Jesus that says, I know you're going to fall. I know you're going to deny me, but come back to me. My grace is here for you to receive forgiveness. And we can if we respond properly, if we can become broken over our sin, if we can turn from that and just turn back to him, the one who so obviously deserves it. He's proved time and time again that he's worthy from taking on flesh, coming into the world that, that he's created, submitting himself to, to man and the, and the abuse that he's gone through. He came to those who he created and they rejected him. Not only did they reject him, they had to kill him because they hated him. They can't stand what he represents. We still face that battle, even today. In closing today, I want to read a passage from Philippians chapter 2. I want to start at verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to see that there's no wiggle room in this. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I ask you to consider today the humiliation that Christ has suffered on your behalf, the abandonment. Are you Peter? Are you following Jesus just close enough to maybe even believe the lie that you're not really even saved? That if I can show up in the right places, that if I can say the right things, if I can wear the right clothes, if I can sing the right songs, maybe I'll fool him into believing me that I really did love him. 
And as soon as the world closes in, as soon as we get pressure, as soon as we get persecution, as soon as someone that we do like or we do exalt questions our loyalty to Christ, are we ready to just throw him away? Is that you? Or are you the one who mocks? Are you the one that wants to make fun of him because you really can't stand him, that you want everyone else to hate him and blaspheme him and turn him away because that will make you feel better too? Or are you the, the knowledgeable, the high religious Sanhedrin, the, the lofty council that has all these thing, things figured out? They know all the things of God, so we just need to sweep this one under the rug because I know what's going on. I know who Jesus is, and I, and I know what to do with Jesus. I've got the knowledge. I've got this figured out. I'm smart enough to know what's really going on here. Wherever you line up in that, consider what Jesus has done for you and confess be broken and just confess that he is the Lord of your life and accept that forgiveness that you do not deserve and let him remove the condemnation from your life that you can stand before God uncondemned because one way or another you're going to make that confession it can be here it can be today and you can receive forgiveness and you can receive eternal life or you can make that confession on your way into the devil's hell with those who have continually rejected him, with those that, who will not submit to him, who will not exalt him, no matter what he's done. But one way or another, that moment is going to come where you will confess. There is no wiggle room in that. But this is not a forced decision. This is a decision that has come through the way of humiliation, just a path of humble obedience on your behalf that has led to his exaltation. So let me ask you just this one question. What is keeping you from giving Christ his rightful place of exaltation in your life? What is it? Everything we have here is fleeting. Everything we have here will be lost. It will be gone. You can take none of this with you. The only thing that will matter is Christ. What could possibly be so important to take the place of, of Jesus? on your behalf suffered humiliation unimaginable beaten in ways we can't describe and as we will see the next phase of this he suffers the wrath of God the ultimate shame the ultimate sacrifice what can possibly possibly keep you from turning to him and accepting that forgiveness let's go to the Lord in prayer Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm just almost at a loss. I think about Jesus and I think about his life and what he gone through and, and who he went through it for, Lord. And I see myself there and I become broken, Lord, and I just want to fall at his feet. Lord, I want that for everyone. God, I just pray that through your Holy Spirit we would just experience a working Spirits renewed, lives changed, refreshed, restored, transformed by the power of Jesus, Lord. That as we've heard your word today, our faith would be activated, God, and we would begin to pursue you with the great tenacity and pursue the truth of your word, and we would begin to love people the way you have called us to love people. That we would really become the church 
that we would really live like Jesus and love Jesus and begin to make an impact for the kingdom. Oh, Father, I just ask that you would work. And I ask that in Jesus' name.